0: Welcome to For the Love podcast with best-selling author Jen Hatmaker. Come on in and join us for a chat with Jen and friends about all the things we love. Now, here's Jen.
1: Hey guys. It's Jen Hatmaker. Thanks for joining me this week on the For the Love podcast. This has been the most fun with you on here ever and We're in the middle of a series right now called For the Love of Moxie, and Moxie is this word that I love, and I took it from the title of a book that I just released called Of Mess and Moxie. It's available everywhere. It was just released about a minute ago, and it's this idea of Moxie that I love. Um, specifically with women, women who have demonstrated immense courage, um, aptitude. They're building beautiful spaces or amazing ministries or companies, or they're teaching us and leading us in really profound and important ways right now in our culture. And so I wanted to put them in front of you so we can learn from them and talk to them. And you guys, today's guest is just, I don't even know. (laughs) I just don't even know what to say. You're going to love this next hour. I'll tell you that right now, because on the podcast today, we have the incomparable Dr. Brene Brown. So I'm sure she needs no explanation, but I'm going to give her one anyway before we jump on the call here. So um, Brene, is a she's a research professor at the University of Houston in the Graduate College of Social Work. And so she spent basically the last 16 years studying some really interesting subjects, specifically shame, courage, vulnerability, and empathy. Um, I would say those are four things that we are in need of in today's world. So she's the author of three number one New York Times bestsellers, um, The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, and Rising Strong. I have read absolutely every word of every one of them. They've influenced me so deeply. Um, her latest book is called Braving the Wilderness, The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone. And it is released this fall. Um, it's going to be some of her best work. And I, we're going to talk a little bit about it today. So Brene's TED Talk, um, the one called The Power of Vulnerability. You guys, it's one of the top five most viewed TED Talks in the world It has over 30 million views because it resonated that deeply. So in addition to her research and writing, Brene is the founder and the CEO of Brave Leaders, Inc. So this is an organization that brings um, courage building programs to teams and leaders and entrepreneurs and change makers and culture shifters. I mean, she's everywhere, you guys. Her work matters to everyone. If you're a human being, her work and research has the capacity to change the way that you are living your life. So she's a fellow Texan. She lives in Houston with her husband, Steve, and their kids, Ellen and Charlie. And I am so excited to have her on today. You are gonna love this talk. I suggest you grab a notebook and a pen because everything she has to say is gold. So without further ado, let's welcome in Brene Brown. Good morning to Brene Brown. Thank you
0: for joining me this morning, friend. Good morning. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I kept thinking, I told my husband, Steve, I'm like, I absolutely have to be on this podcast because I am both messy and full of moxie. So this is my, this is where I
1: belong. Uh-huh. Girl, this is our lane. We we run it well. This um, is our lane. And actually, those both twin lanes. So, um, everybody needs to know that we both are Texans. And so what that means is with, with you in Houston and me and Austin, we're, we're dead. We've melted. We are speaking from beyond the
0: grave. Oh my it's awful. God. It's hot as Hades. I it's mean, awful. it is. Yeah. And you know what? I swore this year I would not piss and moan about the weather. I'd be like, no, I'm just not going to do it this year. I'm just right. going to accept it as part of, you know, Texas living. but When I got to like August 10th, I was like, I can't, it's not, this is not natural. It's not right. Mm -hmm. And we're not robots.
1: It's -mm. the same reason I tell my friends that live in Chicago somewhere around February. I'm like, why do you live there? Why? That doesn't make sense. 25 below. That's, that's not real life. So anyway, we're sorry that we say that all of us Texans that talk about the heat, but you don't
0: understand listeners how hot it is here. So let me just say this. I walk outside my hair sticks to my neck my glasses fog up and they stay fogged up for 20 minutes That's exactly
1: right she's not exaggerating Mm-mm. that is exactly what happens so anyway we are good people we are and you know what come like october november december january then we remember why we live here
0: oh my god 65 um, sunny smells yeah, like I mean, smells exactly. like football season
1: it's perfect oh, you know you know you're speaking my love language right there <laughs>
0: um so
1: okay i'm so happy to speak with you this morning you're just so important to our culture and to our generation. There's just nobody like you. So let, let's just jump into this. You've let's just do done this amazing body of work and research um, that has specifically shed light on the topics of vulnerability and shame and empathy and suffering. And so no nobody in my life, and I read a lot, has impacted me more around these ideas than you. Can you just Can you tell everybody listening, what even started you down this road? Because these are not the typical (laughs) topics that a researcher reaches for.
0: No, it's weird. Um, It was actually I was working on my dissertation. So I have a bachelor's, master's and PhD in social work. And I was, you know and what I can tell you from like, what ended up being maybe $100,000 in school loans combined, is that connection is why we're here. We are we are hardwired neurobiologically for connection. That is, that was my takeaway from my 15 years of education. Um, most people don't need the 15 years to get to sure. that point, but that's what, that was my takeaway. It was an expensive little lesson. It was expensive little lesson really. Um, but, and I do believe in the absence of connection, spiritual connection, physical connection, emotional, social, um, there's always suffering. And so, by the time I was working on my PhD, I was like, what does that mean, connection? Like, I don't understand exactly what that means. So let me do my dissertation on kind of hacking into connection and what that means. Like, let me lay it out for people because it's kind of a gauzy word. Sure. Um, and so I started researching connection, and I started asking people. I'm a qualitative researcher, so I do long interviews. So I started sitting down with people, really an incredibly diverse group of research participants, and asking, you know, tell me about the connection in your life that's important. Well, as it turns out, and this has been one of the fun, unexpected lessons of my, not fun, but surprising, Hmm. unexpected lessons of my research, that we have a lot of language for hurt, but we have very little language for love and joy. Hmm. And so when you ask people about connection, the way, the only way they can tell you about it is to talk about disconnection. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you say, tell me about the important connections in your life. And they'll say a couple of words that are kind of perfunctory about people that they care about. Then they'll say, but let me tell you about this betrayal and let me tell Mm -hmm. you about this heartache and let me tell you about this loss. And six weeks into that research, I ran Mm -hmm. into shame. And this is a really interesting Mm -hmm. story. They don't tell very often, but I ran into shame and people, people were saying, people were talking about the hardest Thing about being connected is feeling like you be, you're like you are worthy of connection like right. you're good enough for connection and the only reason I knew it was shame that they were talking about was in the early 90s when I was at UT in Austin I worked part-time at a residential treatment facility in the whole country mm-hmm. and we had this situation where I worked with level six Adolescent girls and that's the highest level. These are these are girls who, and boys in, in the treatment center who parental rights had been severed. They were growing up mm. in a residential care facility. Okay. Um, and we had a girl who tried to run away and another girl tried to commit suicide, not in our cabin, but one of the other cabins. And so that meant the whole place went on lockdown. We took shoestrings out of shoes so kids sure. could not run. It was just this crazy thing. And the clinical director met with us, and he said, I know y'all are afraid, and I know this is a scary time, but you can't change the way that you're treating the kids. You can't stop treating the kids with love and care. You can't shame these children into belonging and behaving. Wow. I was like, what? And I remember meeting with him the next day and saying, I want to dig into what you said about not shaming people into change. I feel like that's the way the world works. And he's like... It is the way the world works, and you can change a child's behavior on a dime with shame, Hmm. but you'll kill their spirit in the process.
1: Oh, my gosh. I have goosebumps. You know what's funny? I've read every word you've ever written, and I am, like, holding my breath while you're telling this story. It's because it's just so, it's so true. It rings so true in my spirit, my heart, my experience, and it almost feels shocking that people have not been talking about this ad nauseum for a long time.
0: Yeah, it's weird. It's so weird because I was like, what? I, I couldn't believe it. And th- his name was his name was Bart Kelly, and he was just an amazing clinician. And then when I started getting my master's in social work, I was like, I'm going to hold this this treaty, this, this thesis in front of me the entire time I'm studying social mm-hmm. work. Can you really shame people? Because that's the way everything works. It's the way the majority True. of parenting works. It happens in a lot of classrooms. It happens in a lot of churches, synagogues, yep. and mosques. And so when people started talking about that, I just felt like really and truly God was saying, I'm going to mm-hmm. keep putting this topic of shame in front of you. Like, like, I know this sounds really dramatic, but I really had this moment. Um, I talked to my parents about it. I talked to my priest about it. I had this moment where I was like, God is going to continue to put shame in front of me. Like, I have been chosen. Mm-hmm to understand this and to start a conversation about this. Like, I cannot escape this. This is not my doing. And so I remember going to my dissertation director and saying, look, these connection interviews are turning into shame. I think I need to study it. I feel like it's really calling me. And she's like, absolutely no. Really? Yes. No way. She's like, what's a girl like you doing in a topic like that? She's like, hell no. And I was really defiant. And so I picture me like, you know, 20 years ago, Doc Martens, long skirt, (laughs) motorcycle jacket, um, top messy bun, much like um, the one you wear all the time, round blue glasses that I never take off, and a cigarette hanging out of my mouth. I I can literally see you. Yeah, I can see it. Uh (laughs) And so I go to the library, and I'm like, I'm going to do this anyway. I don't care. Screw it. (laughs) Um, and the very first article I find in the stack says, the decision to study shame has been the death of many academic careers. It did not say that. It did say that. I still have the the article in a drawer in the room I'm sitting in. And so I was like, you know what, screw it, I'm going to do it anyway. And so I started just thinking about shame. I wrote my dissertation about connection and about authenticity and wrote a little bit about vulnerability wrote about shame and then the day i graduated i just dug into shame and started really trying to understand it and so the thing is that everyone wants to know everyone wants to know how do we get to authenticity how do we get to joy how do we get to courage yeah. but no one wants to talk about what gets in the way of those things and what you have to walk through to get there and this is something you have to walk through to get there it's so
1: powerful. You know what? Who's laughing now? I want to I want to look up your old professors
0: and be like, "How do you like them apples?" She was right. It's it is really actually it's really weird because there were there is a collection, a small collection of people, probably 3 or 4 who absolutely railed against me doing this work. And, you know, but let me let me let me let me give them some props. Okay. It was almost the death of my career. Really? Yes, because Why? I, I not understand. I, I couldn't get published. Oh, I see. So yeah. wow. I couldn't get published, and I ended up no one wanted the book. And I mm-hmm. met with a really famous. I did went went to. I will never forget. It's like the Rock, Red Lion Hotel in Austin. They had one of those writers conferences where you pay fifty dollars and you get like an audience with a, a publisher and an editor. And I remember sitting down with this person. I said, this is what I study, and this is – and it was re- – here's a story I've never told. Oh, this is exciting. Yeah. Um, you have that effect on people, Jen. It's
1: good. <laughs> Don't <laughs> worry. It's just me and a handful of my friends listening in. Yeah.
0: Um, so the name of the first book was Hairy Toes and Sexy Rice. Well, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Because and, and it was a really funny story about the first time I got hair on my big toe. <laughs> okay. And I was like – Something's wrong. And so I flipped through all my young Miss and 17 magazines. And no one had any hair on their toes. So I started researching at the library and my middle school genetic disorders. Um, And it was my first real experience of media-induced shame. Ah, interesting. And then the the sexy rice was a it was not my last media induced shame, but it was the first. It was that was my first that controlled my life from age eleven to age thirty five. But then when I had Ellen, uh-huh. she was about two months old. I came home from work, did the whole thing hair up on the head, bra off, uh-huh. sweatpants on. She was probably six months old, and I was sitting on the couch. And this commercial came on for, I think it was Uncle Ben's Rice. And it was like this woman in this silk teddy feeding this man rice. As we do. Yes, as he was sliding down the refrigerator, the Sub Zero refrigerator. And I remember starting to cry. I remember like my extra 30 pounds I was carrying, yep. um, the stretch marks. I was still wearing my diaper size, you know, maxi pad they give totally. you. Your um, slobby
1: sweatpants. Yeah. And yeah.
0: I'm thinking like, I hope she brings home something really carby for dinner. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking, this is the hairy toe feeling. And I was oh, like, yeah. you know what? Screw this. I've got a lot of great friends and not one of them is feeding their man. No. rice while he's sliding down a sub-zero refrigerator and she's wearing you know a teddy.
1: you know how many times I have fed Brandon Hatmaker rice in a teddy as many he slides times? down a refrigerator? Zero. Yeah. And that's that if surprising? You... Yeah. Zero times.
0: Yeah. So I thought so... this was this really funny title. And this yeah. editor looked at me and he goes, you have the credentials to talk about shame, but don't use humor. Nietzsche said, and he quoted Nietzsche about shame or something. And then... I it it just freaked me out I felt completely ashamed I came home I wrote a really serious book no one would publish it Mm -hmm. um and so I borrowed money from my parents wow and I self-published my first book on shame and then one of my colleagues who I really revered at U of H said hey I read your book on shame um it was great. I'm, I'm putting it on my syllabus. Thank you so much. And I was like, God, thank you so much. He's an older guy, like uh-huh. pretty well-known in his field. And he's like, but I've never heard of 3C Press. <laughs> um, and that was my self-published. That was, you know, yeah. Courage, Compassion, Connection. Yep. And so I was like, oh, it's self-published. And I remember the the ding of the door, of the doors opening in the elevator. And he held the elevator open as he walked out and I stayed on. He goes, Oh, actually I won't be putting that in my syllabus. I don't do, I don't do vanity publishing in my courses.
1: No. So on its merit, he was prepared to include it, Yeah. but because it didn't have that credential, he excluded it. I find this whole piece of your story fascinating. And I didn't know any of this. What, what is this? Why do you think the topic of shame and especially in your field sort of in a in a research space why I don't get it why is uh, everybody so against it why is this the death knell of publishing and I don't it's it, so it hard. obviously it, it has it has rung true around our entire nation you like your work has impacted millions and millions and millions of people so it's not for lack of felt need i'm i'm what's your What's your take on this? Why it's, do you think, where's really the easy. resistance coming from?
0: It's really easy. It's because shame is one of the only topics that is both debilitating and universal. So in my field, so one of the things, I, I'll finish the story and then I'll get, then I'll tell you because at the ending of the story is interesting. So I self-published the book. It really takes off among therapists, helping professionals, counselors, clergy, um, and then Penguin offers me a deal to buy the book. And the same guy in a faculty meeting says, in front of my entire faculty, and you have to understand, faculties are, are pretty vicious, yeah. it's, that, it's that Henry Kissinger quote, um, academics are so brutal precisely because the stakes are so small. Ah, um, nice. Yeah. but in my, And he said, I want to give a congratulations to Brene, who had her book picked up by Penguin, and, what I really love is that she self-published it. It was an indie thing, kind of like El Mariachi, like those guys who put the movie on their credit card. She's oh. part of that indie movement. And I was like, oh, gosh. that's funny, because 20 minutes ago, I was like, Vanity Publishing, and you took my book off your syllabus. It was, so there was some weirdness yeah. around that. I tried not to gloat too much, because it's against my principles. but it, Oh, no, it's not against mine. I would be so petty. <laughs> I would be so petty. Nobody could stop me. So here's the answer to your question. So... Penguin grabs the book and the process gets really slowed down. And I'm like, why is this taking so long? And so what we're finding is editors, copy people, technical editors are getting so swept up and they're getting so triggered by it because they're they're finding themselves in it that it's hard to look at it with clarity. And so I go back to this thing that shame is the – and so for helping professionals even – Shame is one of the only things that's completely universal and debilitating. So it's Mm -hmm. not like we're talking about people with a certain diagnosis. This is us. Mm -hmm. You read it. There is no trap door. There is no exit ramp. There is no – you talk about shame. The only people in the world who have no shame are people who have no capacity for empathy or connection. So the only – Like a psychopath. Right. Sociopath, psychopath. That's the only people. So – Everyone knows shame and shame is so debilitating and so paralyzing that it's really hard. Mm. It's really hard to talk about until you just break that, that kind of third rail and say, you know what, I get it, but I'm going to keep talking about it. That's just so
1: interesting. So even like from within your field, just these people their capacity to be objective and to think about this from a clinical standpoint or even a publishing successful standpoint they just couldn't do it because it was too tender it was it rung too true
0: it's too tender and like it's so and now I think you know when I was pregnant with Ellen and I have talked about this before Steve and I were on a walk through our neighborhood and I was like I was due at any time and he's like and we were talking about how we knew having a baby would throw kind of everything upside down. And I was in a, a PhD program. Um, it was very controversial that I got pregnant in the middle of it. And so people were like, how is this going to work? Um, and so I remember Steve saying, what do you want to do? Like, what's your career goal? And I was like, I want to change the global conversation about shame and vulnerability. Yeah. I don't know what it looks like, but that's what I want to do. And I think we've done that. I think we've done it. I mean, I think. Oh, you've done it. I think we, we have think done it's it. Not I mean, just me, but I think we've—I I think we've made it okay to talk about this.
1: It's—it's it's really phenomenal um, how far and wide your message reaches because it is so universal. So I can read one of your books and exactly and almost precisely apply it to me in my sort of Christian church context. But if I switched gears and applied it to a school context. It fits perfectly still in the classroom. If I apply it to a communal context just in a in a neighborhood, it always fits. And so you've you've found a way um, to message and language and explain your pretty heady research. I mean, this isn't just this isn't just some girl throwing some ideas against a wall. I mean, this is heavily researched, incredibly deep and important work, but you've You've made it accessible to all of us regulars, and it really has positively changed the conversation. Let's let's dive into one of the one of the legs that you deal with vulnerability, which is um, all of this dovetails together. Every bit of it, just the shame and the vulnerabilities of all this sort of comes together. So your your TED talk on vulnerability is, I think it's in the it's in the top five TED talks of all time in the world. Um, and it's it hits such a nerve. So, I've got a question for you because I, I think this idea of vulnerability is interesting right now because it has caught some wind. It has. It you have sh- you've you've shown a light on this that has um, changed the conversation, brought a lot more seats up to the table. But so as I think about it now, a little bit more exposed than it was, let's say, 10 years ago, um, we see people expressing themselves more and more in a public setting. So, there is this sense that we are. Becoming a little bit more vulnerable in our social media spaces and blogging and our storytelling or whatever. Um, I, I'm curious your take on that because I wonder sometimes if that is authentic vulnerability if it doesn't have a huge cost. Do you know what I mean? Well, what do you think about that? Sort of the way everything is almost an overshare at this point.
0: One thing I want to say is like, I think the reason why I've been able to do this work and talk about it with this language is because I am a regular like Mm -hmm. I think I am such a regular um I'm such a regular and that's been such a shame trigger for me throughout. Hmm. I think one of the reasons why maybe I was called to do the work around shame and vulnerability is because my own shame around getting into a PhD program, being the first woman to go to college in my family, not pronouncing words the right way, not knowing statistics, not having a background where, you know, having to get tutors right away. So I am a regular regular. And the funny thing is, and I just want to go back to this because I'm so struck by it. The biggest thing that happens to me when I get off a stage or when I finish talking are people say, I already knew everything you were talking about. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have the words. Yeah. And so I think we all know this and it's why it resonates. I mean, it's a really hard question about what we're seeing in terms of sharing and vulnerability.
1: Well, I can even apply it to my own space. So I have one brand of vulnerability that I can sort of hold out to people in an online setting, and it is very low risk. Um, it, it, it does expose something truthful or honest or a little bit of a mess, um, but the, the cost is low. So I, I'm not necessarily sharing something that is deeply vulnerable. Um, it just seems it. And so there's a big difference because I've done both. But when I come out with something that is as fragile as it can be and as n- tender and near and dear to my heart as anything I can imagine, that feels really different. That brand of vulnerability is completely different than the first when I just share a picture of a messy
0: closet. You know what I mean? No, I think it's true. And I think, I I guess here's what I would say. I ask myself, Mm -hmm. the overshare question is, what is your intention for sharing? And what is your intention for sharing? And so Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's happened is, so like, I have a line. For what I share. Mm-hmm. I will share what's vulnerable in my life. I will not share what's intimate in my life. Yes. Um, because that is not for public consumption. Right. When I share what's vulnerable in my life, when I share the stories of failure, when I share the stories of, you know, for that first that book that Penguin bought and that, you know, the self-published book that Penguin Bought was a complete failure. I write about that in Rising Strong. I share that because I never share a story that my, when, when my healing from that, that story depends on an audience reaction. That's good. Ever. So by the time I share something with an audience, I have processed it, I have healed from it, mm-hmm. and I am as close to being able immune to what the public thinks about it as one could be. Hmm. So I think what we see happening is, you know, I, cause I believe we share our stories with people who've earned the right to hear them. That's right. And so the other thing I don't do, and this is very different than a lot of people, even friends of ours. um, I do not, I believe our stories are meant to be shared and owned and shared in that that order. And I will not take my children's stories from them or leave such a defining mark on them that they will never be able to get out from underneath them.
1: Wow. I think that is
0: so important and increasingly rare. It's increasingly Um, rare because it's it's increasingly rare. So, you know, and the other thing is, you know, For me, I do share stories about Ellen and Charlie because I share stories of my experience as a a mother. It was a huge defining role for me, Mm. Um, if not the defining role, baby. But here's what I can tell you. I've never shared a story with them that I have not asked first. And I've never asked and been told no because I'm very careful about what I ask about. Totally.
1: We now have that rule as well. We have that rule in our family too. In fact, uh, I'm thinking as you're talking about, um, you know, my youngest two are adopted. And when we were early on in the adoption process, before the kids were even home, you know, they're both from Ethiopia. So it was sort of a big international scenario. um, Every All the spotlight in my mind was on adoption and the process of adoption. And so there was an absolutely egregious display of oversharing. And then especially when they first got home and and we were just in the weeds so much and, and we were, everybody was grieving and everybody was, we were just a mess and and they were, and we were, and, and obviously we had so much to adjust to. And I wrote about it a lot at the time. Um, I was really deeply embedded in the adoption community, which is like any community can have a lot of um, insular groupthink, So, You know, even as my words were going on the Internet, I feel like I'm just talking to that crowd. But I'm, you know, when in fact it's public consumption. And so I have since gone back and wiped clean all of my spaces of anything I ever said about that season, about that time, anything I ever wrote on my blog that had to do with their story. I kept a handful of things that had to do with mine. Um, or, or even a more clinical space like adoption ethics. Yeah, you know where I feel like that really that bell still needs to be rung. For sure. But um, I, I learned that lesson the hard way because I think for me ultimately the question came back to, do I want to sit by my kid when he is twenty seven years old and explain to him why I wrote about this hardest year of his life for everyone to read. And that's one of my frameworks. Often, like, how am I going to feel about this in five years? How is my kid going to feel about this in ten? Um, and and often, what seems maybe a little nebulous comes into crystal clear focus. Like, oh nope, that is a non-starter. That should be a non-share. I you mentioned. I really like what you said about how you're as you share something vulnerably, if your healing requires somebody else's input it's either too soon or it's not shareable. Um, and so I want to talk about suffering with you just a little bit, because you also dive into suffering, which requires processing and healing like you so wisely just um, mentioned. And so uh, one of the questions that specifically in my space often um, is, is in relation to suffering plus God. Um, and I, I would just love to have a, a brief Take hey, your take on, on your thoughts here. Like, you know, I think a lot of the questions we ask are things like, "Why? why do these horrible things happen to people that don't deserve it? Why all this unjust and unfair suffering? Why does, why does God stay his hand when he does? Um, does uh, my question to you into, in terms of what you're so good at is, um, do you think suffering, ties in with vulnerability and then ultimately these connection points that you have that sort of is the undercurrent of all of your work. How, how do these things dovetail um, together? Suffering, vulnerability, connection through like shared shared trials and how do you think that affects our spiritual life?
0: <laughs> My default answer would be you should read June Hatmaker. <laughs> you know, really, um I have a very singular experience around around our shared Christian story around suffering. Mm-hmm. Um that made a lot of sense to me and that has continued to make a lot of sense to me and it was when I was very young. Um I was probably maybe 9 or 10 years old and uh, a mom in our neighborhood died of cancer, hmm. and my mother was always incredibly. Back then, I thought just terrible about we had to. We always had to go to every funeral. Hmm. Um, we had to pray and sing. If whether it was our, you know, our faith or a language we understood, it didn't matter. We went. We were always the first at the door with sure. the casseroles. We had to look people in the eye who were in pain. Um, it was just a non-negotiable because you know, my mom, my mom grew up in a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. She, mm. her, you know, my grandmother, who was one of the great loves of my life. I named my daughter Ellen after her. Mm. Was an alcoholic. Um, and it was the fifties and she was divorced. And so no one was allowed at my mom's house. Um, and she just grew up in a lot of suffering. Her only sibling was shot and killed in an, an act of violence. Um, just a hard, a hard, hard life. And so we never got to opt out of being with people and suffering. And so we Mm. went to this funeral of this neighbor. She had really young kids. And the preacher was talking about kind of using this language like, how dare you cry? How dare you mourn? Mm. God has a plan for Linda. Linda's in a better place. Um, We should mourn for ourselves because we're not with her at the feet of God. You know, that kind of thing. Mm. And I remember getting in the car and I said, I said everything along with the, you know, I said everything that I was supposed to say in the service, but I just want you to know, I don't believe anything that they said. Wow. And my mom pulled over and she said, I'm glad you don't believe anything that they said because we, that's not what we believe in our family. What we believe in our family is today. Jesus wept too. Hmm. Wow. How and old were you? Probably eight or nine. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? And my mom said, today, God, today, Jesus, they wept for Linda and Linda's kids and Linda's husband. Mm-hmm. And they're really devastated and sad too. And I was like, but, but the preacher said that it's better and it's part of God's plan. And she's like, people believe that. And that's okay. We don't believe that. We believe today Jesus cries for Linda mm. and Linda's wow. children. It was the day that I felt more connected to God and Jesus than I ever had in my whole life, but also the day that I let go of the fact that they're moving us around like chess pieces.
1: Mm. Can you talk more about that? I'm just, I'm really interested. You're you're giving voice to my spiritual worldview. Um, You know, you and I have so much in common around this and I would just love to hear you talk a little bit more about your how your faith has evolved and your relationship with the church and what you have learned because so much I, I think I've said this um, about your work before. Um, your work is research based; it's science based; it's neurology; it's biology; it's flesh and blood, and to me, it feels absolutely biblical. You know, I uh, science and. To me, spirit are all from the same source, obviously, so there's no, there's no way we're going to have a big contradiction here. And so when I read your work, it feels profoundly spiritual to me and incredibly true. And I just, can you just talk for a minute about how your work and your faith sort of ran on track side by side and how each affected the other? And, and what's your relationship with the church? And what do you think about just the state of it right now? I gave you 10 questions. You just pick one. (laughs) You pick whichever one you
0: want. I just want to listen to your questions. I just learned from your questions. Um, Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Let me unpack. Um, Oh, I've had a very tumultuous relationship with the church and a very clear relationship with God. I'm a Christian. Mm, Um. I don't at all. I I think that the tension between faith and science is complete bullshit. And and literally, and I'm not using this term like unconsciously, Mm -hmm. man-made. I don't, I say this, I don't know where I wrote this, but um, I don't trust a theologian who doesn't believe. Mm. In the beauty of mystery and spirituality. I mean, the beauty and mystery of science. And I don't trust a scientist who doesn't believe in faith. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, yeah, I mean, like, I don't, and as someone who straddles both of those, but, you know, I'm not the only person that sees my data. And so I, you know, so Mm -hmm. I know it doesn't skew because it's just data. there's just not I don't feel torn between them. You know, the That's things awesome. that the things that feel hard for me is, you know, spirituality is a guidepost. It is a very important piece of wholehearted living. Every man and woman that I interviewed that had a strong sense of wholeheartedness, who believed in their self-worth, who believed that despite the fact that they were imperfect and afraid and vulnerable, that they were worthy of love and belonging, every one of those people had a spiritual component in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very controversial in academics, but not controversial among the the regulars, as you would say, and mm-hmm. I'm a regular. And academics are regulars with masks on. Mm, yeah, I suspected. You know, oh, yeah, of course, because mm-hmm. there's nothing but regulars. I mean, yeah. that's it. There's regulars and then whatever armor people put on. Yeah. Um, so and but I define spirituality in a very, you know, my definition of spirituality is a deeply held belief that we are inextricably connected to each other by something greater than us, Mm. something that is grounded in love and compassion. Mm -hmm. I call that thing God. Mm -hmm. I've got friends who call it fishing and nature, you know, Mm -hmm. like, but I happen, the, 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 the story and the narrative that I understand God and my inextricable connection to other people through that narrative is the Christian narrative. Mm. so I'm a Jesus fan Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't probably hold the same vision of Jesus in my head that most people do Mm because you know I have the weeping Jesus in my head that you know he's crying he's at the funeral too Yeah, distraught Um, and so my relationship with the church is tumultuous I haven't been in a year Mm -hmm. miss it like oh my god it's interesting. Yeah, you know, like I was talking, like I was like, I think I'm going to start a church. I'm going to call <laughs> yes, Fred and Shauna Nyquist, and then I'm <laughs> yes. going to start a church, and yes. then it's going to be like this, and we're going to sing and break uh-huh. bread and come to the rail and pass the peace with people we mm-hmm. want to punch in the face. Yeah, but that's what it is. Yeah, but um, but to be honest, you know, I was I was born to the Episcopal faith. Right. I became a Catholic. Not on my own doing. I was mm-hmm. went to a Catholic school in New Orleans. They literally got called to the office. A bishop was there. We read the Nicene Creed. He asked me to explain it to him line by line. I did my damnedest, and then he sent me home with a smelly mimeographed piece of paper that said Brene's Catholic now." Oh my! God. Boom. Boom! Surprise! You're Catholic. Boom! And then my parents became Catholic after, and so. But then I went back to the Episcopal Church. So I'm a I'm a liturgical girl. Yes. Um, I really like the cadence because it's kind of what was implanted in my heart young. Sure. Um, But I really just go to church. I mean, I'm just going to be really honest. I only go to church to sing, Mm -hmm. to pass the peace with people that I don't know and probably disagree with outside of church Mm -hmm. and to go to the rail and break bread with people. Those are the only three reasons I go to church. Do you think it's even
1: possible right now For the church to preserve and advance the Jesus who cries at the funeral, it. I you know I also have I have a long history with the church and it has had a lot of ups and downs and it's changed and it has shifted and um, I just sometimes wonder if the container is just able is it capable to contain the beauty within I'm just not sometimes I'm not sure and I'm really not sure right now. Right now is such a weird time to be a part of, for lack of a better term, the kind of institutional church. It's um, a weird time. It's a weird time. And I watch it so, it's so incredibly fragmented in our culture right now, in our political conversations. Um, and it just, it, it feels like such a hot mess. And that in so many cases, the language, not only the language that we're speaking, but the the God we understand the one that we the jesus that we love it feels like we're talking about completely different people completely different entities and
0: yeah, so i just i don't it, know that's it i don't i you know what i don't know the answer to that question because i don't know because the thing is like i love my church um but i'm not going to go like look I believe in a ballsy Jesus. I'm sorry. I like that. I mean, I'm I, really, Hey, there's your
1: next book title. Yeah, I, like I mean, it. I, I, I just do like,
0: my, my understanding of Jesus is Jesus was an outlaw. Yeah. I mean, Jesus was a, you tell me I can't sit with these people. I'm going to sit with them and I'm going to see the humanity in their eyes. I mean, this, 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 this guy was like a renegade. He was. And I have a whole philosophy about Jesus that's crazy that we can get into some other time. But I, so once, you know, you go into like the Episcopal church, which gives me everything I love around Mm -hmm. the cadence and the liturgy and the form. I I love that kind of stuff. I even like going to high church sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to do a sermon at the National Cathedral in October. Yeah. In Washington, D.C. I'm really excited. I'm sure I'll have goosebumps. But. When when it takes four years to turn that tanker and you have to, you know, have the meeting of the most highly acclaimed bishops of the 45th realm yeah. at Hogwarts, um, like once you get to that to make a decision about whether we're going to marry two people who are living and loving in the Christian faith, yeah. you know, I, you're losing me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because here's the thing. Here's what we know. I spend 90% of my time in organizations doing leadership work. This is something people don't know about me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: From Fortune 100 companies in London, Singapore. I mean, yeah. that's what I do. I work with big companies around leadership a lot. Because vulnerability and courage are core leadership values and shame destroys innovation. So Totally. This is the work I do. So one of the things I know from that work that I think about around church all the time is bureaucracy. When you see bureaucracy, you know it's because there's a lack of discipline. Bureaucracy is the answer to a lack of discipline. Mm. And in church, in in our faith, discipline means following the Gospels in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So what happens is when we stop being disciplined, you know, disciple, disciplined, Mm -hmm. not hard. When we stop following the real teachings of Jesus, what we give birth to is bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what I, the question that I don't know the answer to is, can you create an organization that is fueled by discipline and love of the gospel and Jesus Mm -hmm. and the Christian faith that? doesn't become so afraid of what those rebellious ballsy teachings are that they replace them with bureaucracy.
1: Wow. I don't know either. I don't know either, but this is a fascinating conversation and I wish you could talk about it for 10 straight hours. This is so interesting to me. And as you're talking, uh, it occurs to me that in the same way, I mean, as I just think about bureaucracy, which is, you know, by and large enacted and then kept intact by bureaucrats, um, that in the same way that you say your fellow academics are just regulars with a mask on, yeah. so, so are church leaders. Yeah. So there's this sense that the, you know, primarily men um, who lead the church have this very special anointing, right? Or this, they understand more, they're more capable in some way of healthy, robust spiritual leadership. But in fact, they're just regulars. And that to me is how I understand the kingdom. I mean, all I have to do is read the gospels and see who Jesus spent his time with, who he That's gave it. honor to, who he had pull up a seat to his table. And it was, I mean, all the regulars, the most regular of the regulars. And, and he was constantly elevating their understanding of him you know, over the bureaucrats. So I think you're, you're, I think you're onto something. And as somebody who loves the church, and of course, you know, we lead this little, this just little ratchet, quirky South Austin church here. I, I am so aware of the tendency to drift into bureaucracy when you have a structure, when oh, you yeah, are yeah. in, and I, we're just, we are ever paying attention to it and, 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 and searching our own souls, like, are we settling for rules here over, like, love and grace and inclusion? It's, I I don't know why
0: that's such a human drift, but it is. Because it's I think they're safe,
1: maybe. Yeah, it's uncertainty.
0: It's vulnerability. It's, you know, it's like so funny, because I was at Camp Allen, which is the Episcopal retreat center for this part of Texas, and it's one of my favorite places, and I have to say, like, um, I haven't, I haven't read the book yet, but our Bishop Andy Doyle, who's always in hot mess trouble with everybody, okay. which I love, just wrote a book called The Jesus Heist. Oh, yeah. About how we've, you know, stole nice. Jesus from the gospels. Yeah. Um, wow. But um, I was there and I was, there was this beautiful like statue of naked Jesus on the cross. And then there were these pictures of, like, 15 presiding bishops of Texas um, on the wall. And I'm looking at naked Jesus. And then I'm looking at these men who have 800 pieces of clothing on. Yes. I mean, they have got things that have names. Yes. like, Like, they have... Like these outfits. And yes. I, so when we talk about the regulars mm-hmm. in academic or the regulars in church or when I, be, mm-hmm. when I, when I armor up, when I, when I cover my regular, I think the question is, what power are you protecting and mm-hmm. what vulnerability is scaring you?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I so, mean, that gets to the heart of it, right? It just if gets to the, it just cuts to the heart of it. And, face, yeah. yeah, And if you were naked – which, you know, like you go back to Genesis, they stood in front of each other naked and unashamed. Yep. What shame are those robes hiding? Mm-hmm. What shame is being buried by all those letters that we we put behind our names in academics? What, you know, what what are you afraid that we're going to see? That you're imperfect? That mm-hmm. you're afraid? That your dad's really not, you know, living in, you know, Greece, that he's really been in jail for 20 years? Mm-hmm. Like, whatever story it is, we've got one too.
1: This is why I can't talk to you because you meddle. Like you just get in here <laughs> to our junk and you meddle. And I'm a meddler for so sure. You you're, you're, you're making, I want to, you're laying the pavework for a really good segue. I want to talk about your next book because some of the things you just said, um, are encapsulated in sort of the next work. It comes out this fall and I mean, you've really, really done, you've outdone yourself. I mean, this is, this is one of your most powerful messages, and it's, it feels like a culmination of a lot of teaching that you've already given us um, throughout the last few years. Can you just talk a little bit about, about your next book? What sort of, tell us a little bit about what it's about, when it's coming out, and what we can expect. You know, I trust you because I can hear a train in the background. But you know what? I've said before, if you listen to this podcast, you're just gonna hear a train. We live right next to right next to the tracks, right off Main Street. So. It makes me
0: so happy. That's cute. Uh, no, it does. Like our old house was like before we moved to this house was right by the tracks. I mean, two houses over, and it would be like the Mary Poppins where the train would come and everybody would be like, grab something. Because if something was sitting, <laughs> yes.
1: it would just shake loose. A train um, is weirdly nostalgic, right? It's some sort of old-fashioned-y memory that a lot of us tap into. But yes, that is exactly what it is. It's a best. Here. Hey guys, this is Jen. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. I wanted to break in real quick and tell you about a special offer from audible.com for you, the listeners of the For The Love podcast. So Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service, which is amazing. If you don't already use Audible, you will love it. So you can get a free audiobook just for trying it out. And maybe you might want to check out the audio version of my book for the love or one of many other titles available on audible.com by yours truly. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash hatmaker. Super easy. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash hatmaker for your free audiobook.
0: So Braving the Wilderness is a book about, the subtitle is The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone. And it's really about what does it mean to truly belong? Um, What does it mean to belong to something and to yourself so fully that you're not always walking through the world trying to scrounge up the tribe and the crew at the cost of yourself? and i have to say jen that i i feel like you could title the book how to piss everyone off in mm-hmm. like 150 pages yes. because i had no idea when i went into this research i'd studied mm-hmm. i've studied belonging for like over a decade i had yeah. no idea when i went back into belonging a couple of years ago that i would have to write about the political and ideological yeah. shit show that is our yeah. world right now i mean i did not plan to do that i'm very i'm very um, comfortable making a stand when I see a violation of humanity. Like I'll go mm-hmm. on Facebook. I just did a Facebook live on Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, but I don't really write about politics, but because I'm, I'm studying true belonging mm-hmm. and everyone is bunkered down ideologically right now, um, I had to talk about it. And so this is a book about how to belong to and believe in yourself so fully. That true belonging becomes not something that's granted to you by people on the outside, hmm. but true belonging is what you carry in your heart wherever you go, no matter who you're with.
1: I would love to hear you expand that idea of what you think it means to really and deeply like belong to yourself.
0: What, what does that mean? Will you, will, you, will you lay that out a little bit? Yeah, I think true belonging is actually a spiritual practice. And I think it's the ability to belong to and believe in yourself so fully that you find sacredness in being a part of something bigger than you, but you also find sacredness in standing alone when you're called to stand alone.
1: Yeah. That um, rings incredibly true and familiar um, and right. And there's something, um, it's interesting. I've, I've, I've gotten to read pieces of, of that, of that work of yours and what, What's hard to convince people of, I think on the front edge of that wilderness where I mean you are leaving the safety of of the the sanctioned city and heading out into the wilderness is um, those first steps and that boy that that journey out there it feels so lonely and so terrifying and but there's what we what I wish we could convince people of is that once you get there, the joy, the wholeness, the, the, uh, the health, the internal health, the emotional and relational and spiritual health is unmatched. I mean, it's, you can't, I'm not, sure, I don't think you can duplicate it any other way. You can't. Um, than, than having that be an inside job you as can't. opposed to an outside applause. Yeah.
0: No, and I use the wilderness as a metaphor to talk about what it feels like when you stand on your own. it feels like when you stand up in your family and say, you know what? I don't think this is funny. Yes. Or you know what? I know we tell the story every year, but I think this story has some hurt woven through it for me and it's just not good. It's not good for me anymore. Or you stand up to a community or you take a position in a meeting. It doesn't matter what it is. When you stand alone, it is the wilderness. It is the wilderness of uncertainty. It's the wilderness of vulnerability. It's the uncertainty. It's the wilderness of potential criticism, which usually happens, but you know, I invited you to share a story in the book. And I have to tell you that the story you share is in the last chapter called strong back, soft front, wild heart. Mm. And that story that you share brought everyone who's read it, including like my editor publishers, um, to tears, because the Mm. one thing that you say is, exactly what you're talking about right now walking away from the group the posse the crew mm-hmm. and taking a stand is this, is, the, is the most terrifying thing we can ever do but when you get to the wilderness I love what you talk about you will find all the creatives all the outlaws all the people who we admire they're out there you're not going to be alone out there but I'll tell you the walk out there is a hell of a walk
1: that's just it. I, I'm I'm absolutely convinced Jesus would be out there. He was always going against the grain.
0: And well, where and does the, Jesus live? The wilderness. Exactly. I, I mean, mean, Jesus is on the fifth floor of Transco Towers. Right. <laughs> exactly. He's he's
1: my person. He's uh, it is in his his shoes that I I aim to follow and I aim to to emulate. But it, it is true that the the risk is is exactly what you've said all along. You you worry that what you're going to lose is belonging and it's so near and dear to us. It's, it's so important. It's so tribal, um, to, to belong. And so when, when that feels at risk, well, I think that's why the majority of us will, will maybe never brave the wilderness because it's too scary. It's, it's too much of a loss, but the truth is there is a different type of belonging out there in the wilderness and it Absolutely. is wild and it is free and it is beautiful and it is not afraid. Um, and it's not trying to keep everybody in and out because there's really no walls. It's just this wild, eclectic mix of prophets and, and creatives and, and and the ones who sort of color outside the lines. And I mean, what a gift. What a joy. I, I, I wish I would have run to it earlier, to be honest.
0: I do too. And I think the hard thing is for all of us and myself included, that belonging does not have bunkers. Hmm.
1: You know, I'm going to um, get that on a tattoo on well, my side thigh.
0: Yeah. But, yeah. Yes. <laughs> we'll have matching ones maybe. You know, yeah, de- belonging doesn't have bunkers. Um, and what I'm seeing today, and it's really interesting, the third chapter of um, the book is called High Lonesome, which mm-hmm. is a type of bluegrass music which I really love. Um, kind of Bill Monroe, bluegrass, yeah. kind of calling, chilling music. And we're in a period of high lonesome right now because – we are more sorted ideologically than we've ever been in the history of our country. Mm -hmm. Meaning more so than ever, we go to church, go to school and hang out with only people who hate the same people we do. Great, right, exactly. And at the very same time, we're more sorted than we've ever been, we are also lonelier than we've ever been in human history. Mm. So what's happening is we've sorted ourselves into ideological bunkers but it, those relationships have no meaning. Hmm. Um, because it's I call it common enemy intimacy. The only thing we have in common is we hate we hate the same people. What a horrible life. Yeah, and how it, interesting and terrible. that
1: your research essentially shows, hey, not only is this not a great way to live, it's not working. It's we're not lonely, working. we're sad, we're hiding yeah. from ourselves and each other. Yeah. So uh, I uh, this this book Braving the Wilderness is it's gonna blow people's minds. It's gonna push really hard and it needs to, it's time. Um, there's somebody has to speak into this polarized culture that we have right now and you're doing it and it's gonna be really, it's gonna matter. I can't wait to see um, sort of the effects of this discussion um, in, our, in our culture right now. When does it come out specifically?
0: It comes out on September 12th Yes, and I'm really excited. And it's going to be embracing myself because it's, you know, it's a hard, it's a, it's an easy, Mm -hmm. it's a quick read. It's an easy read, but um, it was uncomfortable to write and parts of it can be uncomfortable to read. Right. Which means it's going to
1: come with criticism, um, which is always fun. Just a joy. It is. Um, But you know
0: what? I've decided my whole new thing about that is, you know, we talk about Jesus. It's not like Jesus didn't have critics. Um, True. I think criticism is a small price to pay for doing work that you love and you think matters. And so... I couldn't
1: possibly agree more.
0: Yeah. I, I, mean, to, I, I really couldn't. I, I have to steal myself for it sometimes because I am just a regular and I've got a big, messy, moxie-filled heart. Um, this is going to be my new, new thing, Jen. I'm going to be mess, moxie, and meddling.
1: <laughs> it feels right. I've just rebranded you I'll yeah. call your people. Yeah. Okay, so... Here's what we're going to do, because you're amazing. I I promise you that I could sit here and talk to you about all of this for the whole entire rest of the day, but you've got work to do. Um, So here's what we're going to do. This is the series is for the love of Moxie. And so um, I wanted to have you on because I can hardly think of a peer um, and a leader right now in our culture that has more Moxie than you. And of course, as you've so... Beautifully explained for your entire career, mess goes with that. Yeah. So, I'm going to ask you three questions. I'm asking everybody in this series sure. the same questions. Here's the first one. Um, so, we've all had a lot of moments we're really proud of and some not. Um, sometimes those end up being one of the same in a weird way. So, what's a messy moment, quote-unquote, that you've had in your life um, that you sort of powered through and emerged from and... What did it teach
0: you? I'm in a messy moment right now, and I'll be really vulnerable. It is okay. kind of a messy moment that I'm in right now. I'm dropping my daughter off at college day after tomorrow for the first time, and it's really messy. And we found ourselves we find ourselves like butting heads in ways that we've never done before. And we're both really good at saying, okay, this is this is about this is about leaving. This is about fear. This is about grief. Um, and we give ourselves some space and time and come back and love on each other. Um, but it's been an important reminder for me that I I need to work on not being scary when I'm scared.
1: Ah, oh gosh. Dang it, that's a metal. Just put it under metal.
0: Yeah, I, I can be scared I can be scary and forceful when mm, I'm scared. Me too. And so I'm in that mess right now, but just keep watching my vulnerability and keep practicing gratitude that's what i'm doing
1: you know i'm your sister in this Um, this very minute while you and i are talking brandon is driving my oldest son back to college and then my next one's a senior and so it just feels it does feel scary and i want to clamp down and interestingly because you've taught me this um, brandon and i were just having a conversation last week because our son is going back a year older and so he's got a little bit more freedoms and some of his circumstances are, uh, are older and more grown up and I'm afraid of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I, Brand and I were just saying, we've got to carefully watch our shame meter here that we're not shaming him into being responsible. Oh yeah. I know. Um, Cause yeah. I want to, I want to shame him all the way to make sure that he's going to be fine because yeah. um, he doesn't want to disappoint me. But that's a, te- that's a terrible way to live and a parent. And so I know this because I've got your voice in my head um, that shame doesn't work, even if I feel like it'll give me results I want.
0: Right, no, um, I'm, I'm with you 100%. And um, I can do the same thing.
1: Yes, exactly. Like, I just want you to feel bad enough that if you drop this ball, you're going to be too embarrassed to tell us. So, in other words, you're going to pay your bills. Yeah, right. So, i got to really work on that um, approach. So, okay, thank you for sharing that. I just am so with you on that one. So, here's the second one. Um, I mentioned at the top of the interview, um, we we think you have a lot of moxie, ma'am. Lots, (laughs) lots, lots. So, can you remember a moment in your life where you felt like you just embodied it? Like this is my moxie moment where just like grit and sheer willpower helped you accomplish something or do something you were afraid of.
0: You know what? I actually, I, I get my moxie on pretty regularly. Um, but I just had a really, really hard work conversation with an external partner and when I got off the phone, I was like, your book was kind of sitting on my chair mm-hmm. and I just smiled and looked at it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I am not interested in being liked and patted on the head anymore. Nice. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. I, I hope I'm respected and I'm respectful, but I'm not afraid of a hard conversation anymore. I don't enjoy them, but I'm not afraid of them. That is uh, so
1: gritty. And I love it. Um, okay, let's 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 end here. So, um, I, I I wrote an essay in Moxie called Rewoven, um, essentially about um, putting broken things back together and standing up after things have fallen apart. So, on that topic, can you tell us from your body of work um, why it's so important to to do this work to look internally at our own personal shame, at our own ability or disability to be vulnerable. Um, and what should we expect by doing that hard work? Because that work is hard. No, I, I know very few people who want to do that, to, to mine it out and excavate it and lay it out for, um, for review. So why, does,
0: why do we need to do that? And what should we expect if we are willing to risk it? It is a season. It will have an end. But I think the biggest learning that I have from the research for me is that if you own the story of suffering, of struggle, of pain, you can write the ending. If you do not own it, if you do not lay it out and pick up the pieces, if you orphan it, it will own you. Mm. So you can either own suffering or suffering can own you. Um, We have to own our suffering and we have to keep in mind it's a season. It will end. You're not alone in it. The only way through it is through it. Yeah, I wish there was another way, there's but no there other isn't. Way. Is there? No, there's no other way, and it's the birthplace of moxie. You're right. Look, moxie right. doesn't in- moxie doesn't come from all the good stuff that happens to you. It's from working through the bad stuff. That's right, and it's an
1: inside job. Um, you know, my world is such that there's a lot of external influences on my. Success, if you want to call it that, or my yeah. whatever, whatever it is, there's a lot of other people involved. Um and I can tell when I'm giving everybody else more power in my life than what is actually happening in my heart and soul. that's right. Um and it never it never works. Even when it's working, it doesn't work because it feels scary to me because I'm about to lose it.' Um, yeah, you're and h- so just hustling for it, ha- yeah, I'm just hustling for it, and, and at that point, I'm just trying to keep it. So there is something about being deeply grounded and true, and then what comes, comes. You know, what let it come what may, and you can handle it with, with strength and courage and, and moxie. So will you just, real quick, before we dial off here, can you tell people if they're thinking, that's me, I've no, I do, have not owned my own suffering, I have not owned my own story, I have not done this hard work, where can they start if they're at step one? Can you give a couple of your, your best
0: resources yeah. I mean, I think in terms of like reading in books, I think, um, I love the gifts of imperfection, which is my, one of my first books. I think Thank it you. talks very specifically about that. I love Pema Chodron. Um, I think we start in singular conversations with people we trust, people we know who can respond with empathy.
1: Mm, yes. Uh, your website is actually full of yes.
0: wonderful resources. A yeah, great short basis little videos. Start. Yeah.
1: Will you tell everybody just um, how they can find you, where your stuff sure. is at. As soon as they log off of this podcast, they're going to go right to it. Where do they go?
0: Um, BreneBrown.com is the website. We're doing a big relaunch in September, so visit now, but you'll see something new and wonderful in a few weeks. Um, and I want to say before we get off, um, thank you so much for Mess and Moxie, and thank you for sharing your life and letting us see you so we can see ourselves in your stories because they make a huge difference.
1: What a nice thing to say. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Jen.
1: Everybody, Brene Brown. Um, She's the actual best. So thank you for your time today. This is going to matter to so many people and it's just mattered to me already. So cheering you on sister. You too. Bye. Bye. Pretty amazing, right? You guys, I am so grateful that I get to share planet space with Brene Brown, that we get to live at the same time in history. She is just something. I mean, so special, so smart, so profound. I am so grateful that she did not take no for an answer and that she forged into her work and her research because it has mattered to so many of us. I hope that you loved our conversation today. I hope you took something away from it. I know I did. Absolutely you're going to want to you're going to want to buy Brené's next book positively if nothing else for the brilliant interview in her last chapter with Jen Hatmaker I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Brene's work stands alone. She needs nobody um, to come alongside of her. She's so great. So I hope you're loving this series. Um, I want it to be useful to you. I want you to be listening and learning and being stretched and challenged. And I know I definitely am. And we have more amazing guests to come, women who are different and kind of all over the map, but leading in ways that I find incredibly courageous and smart and relevant and timely. And so you're just gonna wanna tune in week in and week out um, for the duration of this series. But um, I'm so grateful to Brene for joining me today. And I hope you loved it, guys. Thanks for tuning in every week. It's so great to have you. Really, it's so great to have you in this community. And this podcast is just a real joy in my life right now. So you guys have a fabulous week, a fantastic week, and I can't wait to have you back here next week.
0: Thanks for joining us today on the For the Love podcast. Tune in next week when we sit down again with Jen and friends to chat about all the things we love.